Good afternoon, church. It's good to be with you. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Psalms, Psalm 146. Also, if you have your Bibles, please do turn to Psalm 146, and you can say amen when you have it. We are in a uh, series called Navigating Hard Times, uh, and we arrive at Psalm 146 uh, in the middle of that series, and we're going to get a word from the Lord today on who exactly we are to trust in hard times. Uh, so I'm going to read God's word for us, and then I'm going to ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed. Let's pray, saints. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we praise you because of your word. And I ask that you would use the, the preaching of your word to bring about much praise uh, for your name. I pray that you would do this for the good of your people here and for your glory. In Christ's name we ask, amen. amen. <clears throat> well, I, I am I'm not in the art world. I like art. Anybody here like art? Okay, yeah, some hands, a smattering of hands. Okay, uh, but I'm not in the art world. So what I mean by that is I've never purchased a piece of art in a way that shows that I actually know what I'm doing. Okay, so I can't go to an art gallery downtown and talk to people about technique and, and style and, and act like I know what I'm talking about. I'm not in the art world. We have one piece on our wall. It's from Target or Ikea, one of those. It's, I think it's printed uh, by people who are in that world. It's probably worth nothing, but we like it. But a couple weeks ago while we were on vacation, I had a chance to watch this documentary with, with Cindy. We watched it together. It's called Major Look. It's not a Nas reference. There uh, we go. Uh, it, it is a, it's a documentary uh, that centers around this, this old, it's actually the oldest art gallery in New York City. And its director, who was unknowingly purchasing and selling modern art classics 
for millions of dollars, and they were fake. And in the documentary, she protests that she didn't know that they were fake. I didn't, I didn't know they were fake. And the reason that she didn't know that they were fake is because in order to sell that kind of art for that kind of money, it has to be vetted. Okay, so it has to go to these experts, and these experts they look at it and they and they and they magnify with magnifying glasses, and they and they look at their their references and all the things they've studied about the artist that they're experts in, and they say, yes, this is by uh, Jackson Pollock, and it's is and it's beautiful and it's genuine and it's worthy of people coming to your gallery when you hang it on the wall, and they're going to come and they're going to go, oh, that's lovely, and then they should pay like eight million dollars for it. And they did. Dozens, hundreds of times, they vouched for hundreds of fake photos, fake, fake paintings rather, and they said that they were authentic. They appraised them and people paid for them. The, the English word to praise originally meant to set a price on. Okay, to appraise something. This is where we get the idea uh, to, to praise or to, to commend the worth of, of something. And so praise is a response to worthiness or, or of someone or something. And so they looked at these pieces of art and they said, yeah, that's worthy of your praise and your $8 million. And what struck me as I watched it was the idea that this expert could examine something, affirm it, appraise it, ascribe it value, and call others to do the same, and praise this artist's work, and cause people to trust in it, and they would do it even though it was fake. The appraisal and praise at the end of the day was false, it was fraudulent. And what these art lovers were, were valuing and trusting and, and paying for was worthless. It's not a Pollock. It's not genuine. It's not actually worthy of the praise that you are giving to it. And very similarly, our passage for this afternoon is, is a call to praise and to trust in what you are praising, to ascribe what you are praising or who you are praising, the value that is due his name and his character. And this psalm offers a brief appraisal of man and then an appraisal of God and concludes that God is worthy to be trusted and worthy to be praised. And so his people ought to affirm him and, and rely on him and lean on him and trust him for help. And, and this will be, that's going to be the call this afternoon. And we're going to do this in two points. They're really simple. Man, a false hope. That's point number one. And point number two is God, our good help. Man, a false hope. God, our good help. Just a little bit of context about this particular psalm. It's not clear uh, who wrote this psalm. Uh, many think it was David. It could be David, but there's nothing that gives us evidence to point to uh, it being David. But what is clear is that this is a psalm that is part of a group of psalms that are specifically written for the purpose of giving God praise. And they all begin and end the same. So if you read Psalm 146, 147, 148, 49, and 150 to the end of the book of Psalms, the whole Psalter, all those psalms begin and end with praise the Lord, or hallelujah. And, and this is a group of psalms that conclude the entire book, and the, the purpose of them, again, is to give God praise. And the psalmist starts by preaching to himself. 
Look at it. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. He writes, praise the Lord, O my soul. My soul refers to his whole being. The, the, the part of him that, that, that makes up who, who he is. He's calling his soul to, to praise the Lord. And he, and he answers himself. I will. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And so as long as he is alive, he says that his soul's purpose, the, 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 the chief goal of his soul is to praise the Lord. And this is an inner call and a response to praise, and, and not just for a moment or a season, but he says, as long as I live, in every situation, in, in, in the actual things that happen every day, I will praise the Lord. So it's not based on the mood or based on how he's feeling at the moment. This is the theme of his life. And this is why you were made. This is why I was made. We were made to praise the Lord. Amen? Amen? So the psalmist is preaching to his soul so that his soul will do what, what is best for it. And, and while we may praise uh, from our mouths, right? we just sang praises from our mouths, the praise, if you are redeemed, if you are one of God's chosen, the praise comes from your soul. That's where it comes from. And, and it's the soul that we call to praise God. And in, in the call to praise, there is a call to trust. Trust who and, and why? Well, the first is just a very brief assessment, appraisal of who not to trust. Look at verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Who are the princes? Well, this is, this is an idea. Okay, So the idea is anyone who has power, anyone who has influence, anyone who has authority, the ones you might look to with power for help, governments, authorities, leaders, even pastors, the, the people that you, that you would look to for, to trust for giving you some relief. He says, don't put your trust in them. And this is not a suggestion. It's, it's a command. Do not put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And one of the questions I just asked was, does this mean that we are not supposed to trust our leaders or look to them for help? It's, a, I think, a very obvious question to ask. Doesn't Scripture tell us to obey our leaders, to, to pray for them? Even that they're, in Romans 13 tells us that they're appointed by God. Aren't we supposed to have some kind of trust in the ones who are in positions of authority? And I would say, yeah, but it depends on what your soul is trusting them to do. It depends on why you're trusting them. What kind of trust is to be placed in them? What kind of trust is not to be placed in them? What's interesting is that when the psalmist says his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Many commentators point out that the idea is directly connected to the plans of powerful people to actually help you. They're, willing, they're, they're, they're well-meaning plans. They're plans to benefit you and help you. And, and these well-meaning plans of assistance and support 
Their, their plans to bring relief. And, and isn't this why we look to, to leaders and, and government and positions of authority to, we say, will you give me relief? There's a, there's a stimulus check coming. And regardless of what you think about the stimulus check and how we're going to pay for it in, in you know, 10 years, the government says, here's your help. And people are going, yes, yeah. Give me, what did you say, brother? Give me the stimmies. And so those are well-meaning plans to help. And we are trusting people in authority to fulfill their duty in, in this particular office to help. But the psalmist's reminder is, church, if you are looking for relief for your soul, they cannot ultimately provide it. You might be able to pay some bills with a stimulus check. It can do nothing for your soul. And their best intentions, the psalmist says, even their best intentions, they're giving you the best they got. They, They only go as far as they go. They cannot reach your soul. There's no salvation in them, he says. Even though they might not look like it, even though their speech is really assuring and their, and their position seems so immovable, like they'll never be not in charge. Their plans seem so promising and, they, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're so big and, and, and you're so trusting. And at the end of the day, at the end of their life, the psalmist says, each one of them proves just to be a son of man. This is certainly a reference to Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and the dust, and to the dust you shall return. He's talking to Adam there. They are sons of Adam. Their plans, well-intentioned as they may be, they die when they die. We see this even in our own government. Right? I, I remember when when I when when I was uh, learning in, in, in school about what the presidents do and, and, the, and every four years there's a new president or sometimes every eight years and then the, they set up these plans and they write, they sign these things in, into rule and then the next president comes in and you can sign an executive order and it's, done, it's like it's gone. So what he planned only lasted as long as he lasted and then it's gone. And people are casting votes and, and, and placing all their trust in, in this man or this woman to do what only the living God can do for your soul. They have no ultimate decisive power in the world that God rules. Listen to William Plummer. He says the best of them are limited in resources and often cannot help those to whom they have the strongest attachment. The best of them, the best of them, are fickle and liable to change from friendship to aversion. And so we do not place our trust in man the way that we must always place our trust in God. We see Paul give this exhortation when he corrects the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What I mean is, he says that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you, he says? He says, yes, I'm an apostle. You, you want to you listen to my authority. God's given it to me. I have unique authority in the church, but I didn't die for your sins. You got it twisted. Like, I'm no savior. Don't look to me that way. And this very same Paul testifies to God being his only help when no one else was there. In 2 Timothy, he says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And so the powerful sons of man, just people, even the best people, great leaders, may seem almighty and worthy of praise, but they are not worthy of the praise and trust and trust that is reserved for the Lord God. We see this even in our Lord Jesus. What does John 2 tell us? On His part, He did not entrust Himself to them. Speaking of people. Because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. And so hope in man is a false hope. And placing all your chips, put all your chips down on the plans. Well, he said he was going to do this. And I'm banking, my, my, my joy is, is just banking on the fulfillment of this promise. You will lose that bet every time. Every time you will lose. Their insight, their foresight, their plans, they only go as far as they do. And we must trust the one who can see all. We have to trust him. Anybody ski? One person. Okay. So to the skiers, I skied once. Okay, so what I mean is I went up to the slope, I went up, I went down, and that was it. I skied once. I couldn't stop. I couldn't control anything. I came flying down the hill and I was just yelling at people to please get out of my way because I, could, I was going to hit them. And then I rolled to the bottom of the hill with one ski and, and that was the end of my ski trip. I was done. I'll never do it again. I skied once. There's a point to this. There's a woman named... Uh, Danielle Umstead, maybe skiers know who she is. She's a U.S. Paralympic alpine skier. And the thing about her is that she, she can't see when she skis down the mountain. She can't see because she's blind. And in an article on her, she says, it's scary all the time going down the hill and not being able to see. Yeah. <laughs> she says, we ski, we ski up to 70 miles per hour. So Right, so I'm 100% relying, listen to this, on my husband. And she gets down the hill as her husband calls out, commands to her, left, right, break. I don't know what the ski terms are, but he, he calls them out. And, and this, is how, this is actually how all blind ski racers train. They're, yes, there are more, Dottie, There's, they're out there. They, they have to completely trust their guide for help. And if they don't, they're going to tumble to the bottom of the hill in the heat. And I, and I would say that trusting God is much 
much in the same way. We are looking to God completely for all that we need. That's who the psalmist calls us to look to. The question is, who is this God? Who is he? Well, he tells us he's God, point number two, our good help. The psalmist turns his attention and ours to the Lord. Now, in verse 5 onward, he says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Forever. And of course, we know that another way to understand the word blessed is what? Is happy. Happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob. So in the very middle of this psalm of praise, the psalmist shifts from the sad results of what it looks like to trust in princes, right? In men. And he shifts our attention to what it, what it looks like for your soul to trust in God. You are made happy that your help comes from the Lord. There's happiness that only comes from trust in God for help in placing our hope in the Lord our God. And we're reminded of a couple things. First is that our God is the God of Jacob. This, this is the God of Jacob now. And we remember Jacob was a trickster. He wrestled with God. He was befriended by God. God changed his name to what? God changed his name to Israel. Who's Israel? That's God's people. And so the psalmist is saying, this is the God of his people. He is the God of his people. He is our God. If you are in Christ, he is your God. He is the God of his covenant people. And saying we must remember that this God, if we are in Christ, he's ours. Isn't that so strange that we can say that about God, who owns everything, who needs nothing, that in Christ he's ours. He's our hope. The, the wicked who, who reject him, the Bible says, are, are without God and without hope in the world. But if we are in Christ, that's not us. The idea there is, the idea here is, is when he says that the God is our help, it is that he is every help that could possibly be needed. Everything you need, like the song says, all my help comes from the Lord. So God makes the soul who trusts in Him help, cry out to Him for help, and then He provides that help. All, all the bases of what you might need are, are covered. You, you, you see the contrast here. Truth in man now looks ridiculous. It looks foolish. Even what they can provide in the present is limited and what they promise for the future is limited to their future, which will inevitably end. And the Lord never ends. And He has your back. He has your side. He has your front. He, and He has your all the way forward in, into glory. He's, he's got you. And we're reminded not only that He is ours and that he, His help is ours, but that God who helps sinners is all-powerful. He made heaven and earth, the psalmist says, the sea and all, and all that is in them. His canvas is creation. He is the creator. He is in charge of the turn of the seasons. I mean, we talk about the weather. We talk about the seasons. 
We run to the store to get bread and milk, which still confuses me. When, when, the, when, the, when the guy comes on and says, it's going to snow a lot. So we, when we run to the store and, and buy up all the bread and the milk and the, and the water, and then it doesn't snow. We gave it the best we had. But not the Lord. He controls it all. And His power is limitless. And the psalmist says He keeps faith forever. You can trust Him. He's the God of Jacob and the maker of heaven and earth. And He keeps faith forever. In other words, His covenant and His creation both testify to the power of His faithfulness. If God says snow, it snows. If God says, I will never leave you, He will never leave you. If God says, rain, it will rain. If God says, I will help you, He will help you. And that's your God. An all-powerful, covenant-keeping God who is to be trusted. Maybe you're familiar with the book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the exchange between Lucy and, and Mr. Beaver. Aslan is a lion. Mr. Beaver says, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And and in in the Lord, we have an all-powerful mighty God who created everything and He's good. How do we know that He's good? Well, let's look at the rest of the psalm. He keeps faith forever. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Do you see, do you see what this is? The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the bowed down, the sojourners, the widows, the fatherless. This is a complete picture of weak people. They're all weak people, suffering people. And the psalmist's assurance to us is that in God, the the one with perfect power, we have the only one who perfectly and faithfully takes up the responsibility of those with power to care for the weak. This is the creator caring for the weakest. He gives justice, he gives food, and he gives freedom. The actual idea in the language here, at least in my study, seems to be that he is continually doing it. He's executing, he's giving, he's setting free, he's opening eyes, he's lifting up, he's loving and he's watching. He doesn't just, he didn't just do it, he's doing it. Like right now he's doing it. Which makes sense when, 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 when God's word tells us that if he began something in you, he's going to bring it to completion. He's doing it right now. We see God show us what power is for. He uses the very power He created everything with to care for His people. This is how God, the text says, loves the righteous. This is how He does it. His people say, are weak. We are weak people. 
The ones who Paul says have this treasure, the gospel in jars of clay, so that, so that when we do things, people go, that was great. We go, no, the power belongs to God and not to us. This is who God is. And all throughout the Old Testament, he did these things. He set prisoners free. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Joseph. And through his prophets, Elijah and Elisha, we even remember in 2 Kings, he fed widows and he raised the dead and he, he watched over his people as they traversed through all sorts of strange and foreign lands as sojourners. And God has chosen, he's chosen now, to display his power and his careful care for weak sinners, not in delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or saving Daniel from prison. He, he chooses to show this most clearly by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He says, if you want evidence that I am powerful, if you want evidence that I am all compassionate and I care for weak people, you look no further than my son, the Lord Jesus. This is where God has made his greatest declaration of his power and his compassion. He executes perfect justice, Jesus does, for the oppressed. Because he's the perfect judge. How do we know that? Listen to Acts 17. God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus, the perfect one who executes perfect justice and thus fulfilling what the psalm says. And so Christian, if you are looking to man to execute justice on your behalf or the behalf of someone you love and they failed you, well, yeah, that's what people do. But not Jesus. Look to Christ, the Son of Man. He does not fail in executing justice. Charles Spurgeon says this, He is the friend of the downtrodden, the avenger of the persecuted, the champion of the helpless. Safely, we may, we, may we trust our cause with such a judge. If it be a just one, happy are we to be under such a ruler. Not only that, but he gives food. Jesus gives food to the hungry. How do we know this? We know this because Matthew 14 tells us he fed 5,000 people. And these disciples said to him, we, don't have any, we, don't have, we only have five loaves and two fish. And what does he say? Bring them to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. Not only does he feed hungry people with actual like food that they can eat, he feeds the hungry with himself. John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And later on, he says in the same chapter, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He fulfilling the, he's fulfilling Psalm 146. I'm the living bread who came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give you for life of the, of, of the world is my flesh. Are you satisfied in Jesus? 
He feeds the hungry. Are you hungry? Come to Him. He, he opens the eyes of the blind. How do we know this? Matthew 9 tells us, and Jesus passed on from there two blind men. Two blind men followed Him. And they cried aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When He entered the house, the blind men came to Him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to Him, Yes, Lord. And then He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done for you. And their eyes were opened. He heals the blind. And hasn't he opened your eyes? Hasn't he opened your eyes? The, the, the word says when one turns to the Lord, the veil has been removed. You were blind. You were dead in your sins. And you were blind to all the goodness that is Jesus Christ, the living God, Son of God, crucified for you. You were blind. You couldn't see it. And then one day, like, Jabi, are you in the book of John? And he opens your eyes. You see it. I see it. He gives you faith. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You can see. Not only does Jesus feed and heal the blind, He raises those who are bowed down. How do we know this? We know this because Luke 13 tells us, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit. For 18 years, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over. I mean, what a good, what a, what a, what a wonderful beckon call that might have been. And said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. He healed, he raised her. She was bowed down and he raised her up. And doesn't he offer a beautiful invitation to lay down your heavy burden of sin that weighs you down, even now some of you. And he offers the freeing burden of his love and his righteousness. How do we know this? In Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's he doing? He's saying, are you bowed down because of your sin? Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden, it won't bow you down. It's light. You see, he wants to be kind to you. Not only does Jesus feed and heal and, and straighten and raise up, he, he loves the righteous. How do we know this? Matthew 13, 41 and 43, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father who has ear. He who has ears, let him hear. He loves the righteous. Not only does Jesus love the righteous, he watched over and watches over strangers. How do we know this? We know this because there was a foreign centurion in Matthew 8 who came to him, not a Jew, a foreigner, and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal. 
Not only does he love the righteous and, and, and watch over strangers, Jesus blessed the fatherless and the widow. How do we know this? Luke 7, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched her and the bearer stood still and he said, Young man, I, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. And weren't you fatherless without God? And didn't he bring you to God himself? Not only that, Jesus tells us that he will bring the way of the wicked to ruin. John 5, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, when you read Psalm 146, and the goodness of God, you are to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is Yahweh. He is the Lord God. Perfect power, perfect compassion, perfectly obedient to His Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross even. Listen to this in 1 Peter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And why do I cite 1 Peter 2, 23? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges just, justly. Entrusting himself. Well, what is the psalm calling us to do? To trust the Lord. And praise the Lord. The problem is, what? We don't. We don't do it. Every day we don't do it. At multiple points during the day, we don't do it. Even though we're called to do it. And so, let me just remind you that even when your trust in man is greater than your trust in God, Jesus is your trust. His perfect trust speaks for you before the Father. So many times we want to approach the Psalms and sing ourselves to obey the commands in them and praise God for that. We ought to do that. I'm going to exhort you in just a couple minutes, or I'm almost done, to, to praise God before this message is finished. But we would be helped to remember first that Jesus Christ, our righteousness, sang, he sang this psalm perfectly. Because he lived it perfectly. All the psalms that cry out, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and then we do nothing. Jesus answers and says, I will. I will. From the time he could utter a word to his last breath, he fulfilled this psalm. He praised the Lord and entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. Perfectly. 
In Jesus, we see God the Son, the perfect one. He trusted perfectly. He praised perfectly. He's perfectly kind. And he's triumphed over sin and death and hell with power. And we see matchless love, unlike any other, that's poured out for weak sinners at the cross. And we say, what do we say? We say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So, last question. Have you made your appraisal? Have you made your assessment, saying, Who's worthy of your trust? Who, who have you been trusting in? Who's worthy of your praise? To the unbeliever here, I plead with you. If you've put your hope for your future in another fallen sinner like yourself, like myself, you've misplaced it. Not only have you misplaced it, you've, you've spit in God's face. Because he said, I'm here to love you and help you and, and you're to trust me. And we say, no, no. And for that, you, you will be judged. You've robbed God of his glory by giving it to another. You've given the trust that belongs to God to another. And, and the Bible says that wrath is upon you now for that. Because your heart and your soul are given to trust mere people. Even trust in yourself. And they can do nothing to save your soul. And your soul apart from Christ is in danger of not only dying, but just as we heard before, by dying under the wrath of God that's poured out on all who reject the Lord Jesus. And so this psalm has one assurance for the wicked who reject Christ. The wicked, he'll bring you to ruin. But he offers himself freely. Jesus who died and is alive and is worthy of your soul's trust. There's no, there's no salvation in anyone else. And to you, Christian, I would ask you, have you made your assessment? Who's been your help thus far? Has it been mere man? Has the surety of your future rested in the plane of a man? Has the future of our little, our little corner of, of God's church here at RCF, has it, has it, has it been shaken because of the pandemic or because of changes in, in your life. I, I, would, I would just ask you, how do you think you got to where you are right now? How do you think you came to love God's kindness? How do you think you came to know Him? How do you think you came to understand His grace? How do you think you came to fight your sin? Not from some dude or some person. It's from God. Listen to Robert Hawker. He says, it is he that hath opened the eyes of the blind. It is he that has loosed them out of prison. He has been their help. Now is and ever will be their redeemer, their God, and the lifter of their head. Here, rest then and shout hallelujah. This God is your God forever and ever. He will be your guide until you die, until death. And the psalm concludes the way it began. We assess man, we say no. When we see the Lord and we say he's worthy of all my trust. And we say the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And just very practically as we close, this is one of the ways that we ourselves fight Trust in man. You say, how do I trust the Lord? You 
trust the Lord by praising the Lord. We sing praise to God because it's one of the ways that we remind ourselves that He is trustworthy and that He is more worthy of our trust than anyone else. It's how we entrust ourselves to Him. And something helpful to ask yourself and ask each other if you are struggling with fear of man or if your faith or your countenance is shaken because someone switched something up on you or, or, or broke a promise or changed their plans is when is the last time you sang? To the Lord. I don't mean just singing here now on Sundays, but I mean, when is the last time you sang praises to the Lord? In your private study, in your room, in your devotional time. When is the last time you encouraged someone else to praise the Lord? It's, it's, it's ascribing the Lord the value due His name and praising Him that everyone else that we may be inclined to trust just appears for what they really are. Sons of man, dust. Son of man is made clear. He's the Lord your God. He's the Christ and he's your hope and he's your perfect help. He's perfect, he's powerful, he's perfectly good and he offers himself to us. Let's ask for his help to praise him and to trust him now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to show us what your love and compassion looks like. Pray that you would help our hearts to praise you and that you would help our hearts to trust you in all things. And we ask that you would help us to encourage one another to do the same for your glory and for the good of your church. Amen. Amen, church.